Well, let's stand and read our scripture text this morning um, as we move into uh, the message. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, if you're new with us, we are currently engaged in a series, a sermon series studying the New Testament book titled uh, The Acts of the Apostles, and we've titled this series Turning the World Upside Down. That title is based on um, a statement in verse 6 of chapter 17 where the disciples of Jesus are spoken of in derogatory terms actually as those who turned, those men who have turned the world upside down. And... Uh, Really true, isn't it? Whoever it was who spoke those words could not have realized the full extent uh, of the truth of that statement. It was a, an accurate expression of the far-reaching impact of, of uh, the gospel message, its widespread influence as it spread outward from Jerusalem uh, to the larger province of Judea and then the province of Samaria and, uh, and beyond over a period of several decades, probably... You know, most scholars believe that the, the the period that's covered in the Acts of the Apostles is a period of about 70 years, and uh, that's probably just about right. 
beginning with the, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, his ascension into heaven, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And, of course, it has continued on uh, to this day. You know, if I was nominating one verse from Acts as a, a theme verse for the entire book, it would probably have to be Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus, just before he ascended into heaven, said to the disciples, uh, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Their, their witness, the witness of every subsequent generation of Christians, uh, has persisted so that here in the 21st century the gospel is still being taken to the ends of the earth. You know, I, I wonder if uh, the disciples could have imagined a place like Olympia, Washington, when uh, when they were thinking about the ends of the earth, but we must be, you know, pretty close to the ends of the earth, don't you think? Most recently in our study, a man named Stephen preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, to the Sanhedrin, uh, the Jewish ruling council in Jerusalem. Uh, they were, of course, deeply offended by his words, uh, so offended that they stoned him to death, and uh, and that triggered. Uh, a subsequent great persecution. You know, we, we know from our history classes that the Christians were severely persecuted. But, and this is the first one. Triggered a persecution that broke out against the church in Jerusalem, surrounding areas. Christians then, Christ followers, scattered out of Jerusalem. And as Acts chapter 8 verse 4 indicates, those who were scattered went about preaching the word wherever they went. And as we saw last week, Exhibit A was a Christ follower named Philip who went down from Jerusalem to the region of Samaria, and there he proclaimed Christ. Uh, this might be a reminder to us today as followers of Jesus that, that we have an equal responsibility to make Christ known in all of, all of the, our spheres of relationship, all the places where we find ourselves. And it may be in your apartment building, your neighborhood, your workplace, the the stores and other places you frequent, even in the park down the street. But that also raises a couple of questions that I've been kind of reflecting on. Um, I think they're worth all of us reflecting on before we let this moment pass in our study of Acts. The first one is this. How, How does the realization that I've been sent as a witness shape the ways that I engage the relationships of my life? Now, what does that affect? Then secondly, what does it look like for your personal story, my personal story, to be drawn up into this larger story of what God is doing in the world through people like you and me, everyday people who have believed the gospel, have been called to be witnesses of the good news of the the death, the resurrection, and lordship of Jesus Christ? What, What is our part? How does our story intersect with that larger story? Well, last week I said to you that there are two storylines in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25. Uh, we saw one of them last week. As you recall, I, I kind of did some, some biblical surgery. I carved out one of those storylines from the larger text. Uh, and I'd encourage you, if you happen to miss last week's message, to, to go online and give it a listen. Where is that, Evan? My, my LPCOLE.com. Moments ago, we, we read that entire passage, uh, 
with the two intertwined storylines. And this morning we're going to explore that second storyline about a man in that Samaritan city whose name was Simon. In verses 4 to 8, Philip preached the gospel in a city in Samaria. The residents gave him their full attention. Uh, He healed the sick and cast out demons from people who were demon-possessed. As a result, the the narrator Luke tells us there was great joy in that city. And I love that line because I, I really truly believe that every Christian church in whatever city they find themselves ought to commit themselves to becoming a source of joy to that city. And uh, to serve in ways that cause people to say, we're so glad you're here and, and we would miss you if you were gone. It's in verse 9 that we're introduced to Simon. And I've titled this section simply, Simon Says. Simon Says. Acts 8, verses 9 through 11. Let me just read those three verses again. But there was a na- man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. There was a second century Roman historian whose name was Suetonius, He recorded that the empire in those days, the whole empire was just overrun with all kinds of wonder workers, astrologers, healers, necromancers. That was the word he used. And of course, the word necromancer, necro meaning death, and that's a person who calls up the dead. And we would call them today maybe a medium or a witch. But one of those who made a special name for himself was a man whose name history records as Simon Magus, whom the early church fathers identify as the same man that we just read about, Simon the Samaritan. And by that expression that we read, the power of God that is called great, or the great power, the Samaritans meant the supreme deity. They they meant God. And apparently, Simon actually claimed at some point, that his supreme deity, that this supreme deity had come to earth, had become incarnate in him for the redemption of humanity. Does that sound familiar at all to you? See, he was presenting himself as a a Christ figure. One of the early church fathers, whose name was Irenaeus, wrote that there was a Samaritan, Simon, a native of the village called Gitto, who in the reign of Claudius Caesar and in your royal city of Rome did mighty acts of magic by virtue of the art of the devils operating in him. So Simon himself was demon-possessed, and almost all the Samaritans and a few even of other nations worship him and acknowledge him as the first god, or in other words, the most high god. In another place, Irenaeus referred to him as this Simon of Samaria from whom all sorts of heresies derive their origin. Quite a guy. How legit a magician was he? Notice what's said of him in verse 10 that was also said of Philip in verse 6, that they all paid attention to him. They all paid attention to him. He, 
he grabbed their attention over and over and over again. And, and he had a reputation that reached all the way to Rome. Some historians have noted that there was a statue in those days in Rome of Simon the Magician. Luke says twice in verses 9 to 11 that, that Simon amazed the Samaritans with his magic. And, and I don't have time to lay it all out for you because there's a lot of data, a lot of historians who wrote about this guy. He was a big deal. But uh, historians record that uh, in their estimation, his sorcery was for real. And uh, their description says that he was into some really, really dark stuff. See, Simon had a high view of himself. Another of the early church fathers, uh, Justin Martyr, said of Simon, this man then was glorified by many as if he were a god. He represented himself in a word as being the loftiest of all powers, that is the being who is the father over all. And he noticed this, and he allowed himself to be called by whatsoever title men were pleased to address him. Verse 10, Luke adds, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man is the power of God that is called great. In other words, Simon claimed to be someone great, persuaded others to believe him, specifically that he represented himself to be God or some kind of divine being emanating from God. So Luke continues then in verses 12 and 13, but when they believed Philip, when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he, Simon, was amazed. So wonder of wonders, miracle of miracles, Luke includes Simon, the magician, the sorcerer, among those who believed and were baptized. See, Simon found in Philip a new and unprecedented challenge. If we compare verses 6 and 10, we understand that, that where the people had for years been paying attention to Simon, being intrigued with him, being fascinated with him, being manipulated by him, making him the center of attention. Now, they were diverting their attention, their fascination to Philip. And the text gives us the reasons why. It wasn't only because Philip's miracles rivaled Simon's magic, though that had to have been a significant factor. It was rather that whereas Simon had for a long time boasted of himself, Philip was boasting in someone else. He was boasting of Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus. He preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name, the reputation, the glory, the honor, the power, the authority, the majesty, the lordship of Jesus Christ. People in large numbers were believing the message and being baptized. And somehow even Simon got in on that action. See, I don't think we probably need to suppose that he was only pretending to believe. I think there was a a form of belief. What's in question, however, is the, the nature and the depth of his belief, whether he ever actually exercised the kind of genuine faith 
that leads to salvation. The Bible describes people who have a form of religion but deny its power. So we need to ask, you know, was was his conversion authentic or was it counterfeit? In fact, I think that's the big question in this entire passage as relates to Simon. Was he for real? You know, one thing we know about counterfeit conversions is that they're, they're eventually exposed, they're eventually revealed, whether in the short term or the long term. Uh, it, all, it all comes out in the wash, as it were. They get revealed, they get exposed. Check out verse 13. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. He continued with Philip, and seeing great signs, signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. And when we read then that that after being baptized, he continued with Philip. If we were just kind of observing that, if we were there, we were kind of observing what was going on, uh, we might tend to conclude, looking through our contemporary filters, that that a discipling relationship was taking place, that Philip was discipling Simon. And who knows, Philip might himself have, have initially regarded it as that, but that phrase, he continued with Philip, means that he, he devoted himself to Philip. He was staying close to Philip. He kind of glued himself to Philip's hip. And, and uh, as he saw Philip's ongoing ministry, this man, this big deal who had amazed others, was himself now amazed at the greater signs, the greater miracles that he was witnessing. Simon was being confronted with a power that he knew was superior to his own. What he seems to have failed to understand was how infinitely superior it actually was. So it doesn't really come as, as any surprise that in verses 18 to 19, we read that Simon commits simony. Simon commits Simony. Oh, what is simony? I'm going to tell you in just a moment. For now, let's look again at the the events described in verses 14 to 17, which we considered last week. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. There are a lot of biblical scholars who refer to the events described in these verses as the Samaritan Pentecost. Samaritan Pentecost. And Last week I offered the simple observation that Luke does not disclose two things in this text that we might otherwise expect or even desire that he would. First, he doesn't tell us how it was that Philip and the two apostles concluded beforehand that the Samaritans had not yet received the Holy Spirit, that it hadn't fallen on them. And secondly, he doesn't tell us afterwards on what basis they then knew that the Samaritans had received the Holy Spirit. So why didn't Luke include that information We observed last week that this is a a very unique set of circumstances in all of the Bible and certainly all the New Testament. And Luke's purpose in telling this story actually had more to do with two other things than with 
providing that information. One is that the apostles that were sent from Jerusalem, Peter and John, witnessed that Samaria, these Samaritans with whom the the Jews in Jerusalem had had a rift running back a thousand years, that these Samaritans had indeed received the word of God, that they were the real deal, and that the Samaritans received the same Holy Spirit that the Jews in Jerusalem had received on the day of Pentecost. They couldn't deny that God had accepted the faith of these Samaritans, had put his spirit in them, and was now including them in his kingdom. What becomes clear in verse 18, though, is that there was, in fact, observable evidence that attended the Samaritans' reception of the Spirit. It could be seen. It could be perceived. Did they speak in tongues? Did they prophesy? Did did they have some kind of experience of ecstatic praise and worship? We're just not told. But here's the critical moment when these two storylines in this passage powerfully, powerfully intersect. Notice verses 18 to 19. Now when Simon saw, that is when he observed, when he perceived, when he came to understand somehow that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. And what Simon did in this interaction gave rise in the church to this term simony. It's named after him, which is the buying and selling of church offices, of church privileges, of church influence. Turning the spiritual into the commercial, trafficking in the things of God. In the history of the church, unfortunately, time and time again, people have engaged in simony. They've, they have purchased offices. Deacon, elder, pastor, priest, bishop, even the pope. It was highly prevalent during the Middle Ages, but I, I don't know that we should conclude that it ended then. I, I believe that it still happens and And I know that some people who are able to give more money to the church than others can have the the attitude that their increased giving ought to buy them increased influence. Simon committed simony. He founded it. He created it. He initiated it because Simon had a low view of the Holy Spirit. He had a low view of the Holy Spirit. He, he saw the power and the authority to confer the Holy Spirit as a commodity to be bought and sold. Worse than that, he understood that power, that spiritual authority, as nothing more than one more resource to add to his tool bag of magical powers, giving him even greater capacity to, to manipulate and to control others to his own ends. Simon thought of the Holy Spirit as a thing, as an impersonal force. 
Simon, you might say that Simon was there very first to try to use the force. He didn't view the Holy Spirit as God. And what Simon would learn the hard way is that you can't buy, you can't buy the gifts of God with money. Now, I hope you understand this morning that God's gifts are, are always given by grace. They, they can't be bought with money. They, they can't be earned with our good works. They can't even be acquired by our cleverness. They're always and only received freely from him by faith. Listen to this word from Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Isn't that beautiful? See, there's, there's no entry fee into the kingdom of God. And if there was, you and I could never afford to pay it. Admission to citizenship in the the kingdom of God was paid for only and exclusively with the the blood of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And all it will ever cost you is everything. Everything you are, heart, soul, mind, and body, everything you have. In verses 20 to 25, we read about the ensuing interaction between Simon and Simon. In this case, Simon and Simon Magus and Simon Peter. And here's where things really heat up. So stay with me and lean in. In response to Simon's offer, Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Literally, may it go to perdition with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Any of you remember the story of Priscilla and Aquila in the New Testament? We'll, we'll, we'll eventually come to it here in the book of Acts. Now, Priscilla and Aquila were this mature, older couple. They were friends of the Apostle Paul. Uh, and there was this young man named Apollos, and he was kind of the, the flavor of the month. And he, he, he was a charismatic personality, a uh, very good teacher. Um, he was young, and he had some things to learn. He was inexperienced. And this older couple, Priscilla and Aquila, any of you have any, any couples here whose names rhyme? Uh, it's kind of cool, though, isn't it? I think Priscilla and Aquila. But they just kind of took Apollos aside. They put their arm around him and said, Hey, hey, Apollos, there's, there's some things that maybe you need to understand that that we kind of think you don't understand yet. And it was a good thing. They, they they helped him mature. They helped him grow. They helped him deepen in his ministry. That's not what Peter did here. <laughs> this is not at all what Peter did. He didn't put his arm around Simon's shoulder. He didn't take him aside and say, Hey, son, I think you may be confused about a few things. What did he do? Peter issued him a harsh rebuke. It was direct, it was precise, it was public. I grew up reading, uh, you know, before paraphrases had gotten really cool, I, I grew up reading J.B. Phillips, and, uh, and I've always appreciated the way J.B. Phillips put this in his paraphrase of the New Testament. But Peter said to him, to hell with you and your money. How dare you think 
you could buy the gift of God. The contemporary English version, which is actually a translation, not a paraphrase, puts it similarly. Peter said to him, you and your money will both end up in hell if you think you can buy God's gift. And Simon here is completely exposed. If we're willing to come to terms with it, Peter's actually saying here that Simon is in ultimate danger of being completely cut off. That's, that's actually what that word perdition means that, that Peter used, to be cut off, to be eternally separated from God. Simon, Peter says, is facing eternal damnation. And as Peter goes on in verse 21, the picture only gets darker because he says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And there are three words here in this short verse that we need to understand. The first word is is the word matter. And that word in the Greek is logos, which many of you know that word. It means it actually means word. It means a message. And and to translate it with the word matter encompasses the presence and the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If we were to translate it word, which some translations do, it, it tends to focus on the message of the gospel, the blessings that flow from believing the gospel. And the next word is part. It means a share. It means a participation. It means a fellowship to be a part of things. And and the third is lot, which means an allotted portion given you by someone else, in this case, God himself. When I was growing up, we used to sing a hymn in church that said, the, the first lines of which said, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? That That's that thought that's presented here in the word lot, that, that I have been granted an interest in Christ. In summary then, in verse 21, Peter's, Peter's just telling Simon, look, dude, you're, you are cut off. He's excluded from the benefits, the blessings of the gospel and of the Holy Spirit. He has no part in the family of God. Why? For one reason, Peter says, because your heart is not right before God. Your heart is not right before God. In verses 22 to 23, Peter adds to his diagnosis of the sickness of Simon's soul, and he he gives him the prescription for getting his heart right with God. He says, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So he denounces Simon's actions and the motivations of his heart as wickedness. And then he says that Simon is in the gall of bitterness. What is the gall of bitterness? Anybody know? You, you don't use that word? You don't use that expression at home? You don't say to your kids, I perceive that you're in the gall of bitterness? Jimmy, in the Bible, gall uh, is the name of a bitter herb. I don't know if 
I suppose it's still around today. But in the Bible, that's that's what Gaul referred to, this bitter herb. It was one of the herbs that was used in the Passover service. And in this case, Peter uses that idea figuratively to point out a severe moral and spiritual defect in Simon. What is that defect? Well, the imagery comes actually from Deuteronomy 29.18. And in that larger passage, it's Moses speaking. And he's speaking to all Israel. And he's issuing them a very serious warning and a rebuke regarding idolatry. And he said to them, you know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you have seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, listen to this because this is so powerful, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Do you hear that? I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead, Moses says, to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike, which I just take to be a a euphemism for you're about to get torched. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him But rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man and the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord, listen, will blot out his name from under heaven. The gall of bitterness then, that that root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, is the heart that stubbornly and self-righteously, naively refuses to, to repent of idolatry, ignoring the holiness and the impending judgment of God. And that person, according to verse 19, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. And Moses says that man will be swept away, will not be forgiven. His name will be blotted out from under heaven. This is what Peter means when he says to Simon that that he is in the gall of bitterness. He's in the grip of idolatry. He's stubbornly holding on to it. His idolatry of power. But what Peter's trying to help him understand is that as tightly as Simon is holding on to that, as as tightly as he's gripping it, refusing to let it go, it's holding on to him even tighter. And that's what 
Peter means, I think, when he quotes from Isaiah 58, 6, saying that Simon is in the bonds of iniquity. He's, he's held by the chains of his own sin. And don't we do that? We say, well, I can handle it. You know, it's, 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 I, can, I, I can get over this pretty quickly. I can, I can drop this habit. I can change this relationship. I can. And what Peter's saying is, it's got you in its grip. We need to take seriously the depth of sin's grasp on our souls. It, it digs its claws deep into our hearts, into our minds, into our relationships. And whatever it is, whatever sin it is that, you, that we're clinging on so, t- so tightly, a, a life of prolonged and persistent idolatry will always entrap us. See, an idol can never deliver what it promises. It can only enslave. And that's why someone once wrote, sin will take you further than you wanted to stray, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. So that's the diagnosis. What's the prescription? It's there in verse 22. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, And pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. What does it mean to repent? Repentance actually represents the effects or the outcomes of an inner change. It describes the the aftermath of a change of mind in in the ways that we think about our sin. It it involves a, a conscious choice to name our sin for what it is, to turn away from that sin that's that's so tightly holding us in its grasp. I, I recently heard a British pastor describe repentance this way. I, I wish I could render this with his British accent because he said it much more elegantly than I can. But he said, repentance isn't saying to the patterns and habits of sin in your life, farewell until we meet again. Farewell until we meet again. And leaving the door open to a reunion. It's making a a choice to shut the door on those patterns, on those habits, those relationships, to lock the door, to nail it shut, never to be opened again, and to walk away from the door. Peter's prescription begins with repentance, and it includes praying for forgiveness. And something else we learn about Simon here is that Simon had an inadequate view of salvation. He had an inadequate view of salvation. Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Let me ask you, what would we expect a sincere believer in Jesus Christ to do at this point? Having been presented with the terrible weight and severe consequence of his sin, having therefore been urged to repent, to ask God for forgiveness, wouldn't we expect humility? Wouldn't we expect the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Wouldn't we expect brokenness, repentance, a sense of urgency to to throw himself on the mercy and the the grace of God, seek his forgiveness. 
When we believe the gospel, we enter into a, a personal relationship with God. As when, when you catch the real disease, when, when you're born again, when you're transformed, however you want to describe that, that thing that happens when, when God changes us from the inside out. We have direct access from that point on to God through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit. The fact that Simon, having been urged to repent of his own sin and to personally ask God for his forgiveness, responds only by asking Peter to pray on his behalf indicates that he himself had no personal relationship with God. There's no humility. There's no brokenness over his sin. There's no apparent repentance. There's, he has no peace with God. All he has is a sense of impending judgment and great fear. See, others can pray for you. No one can believe and repent for you. Others can pray on your behalf. Others, others can ask God to, to have mercy on you, to, to change your heart, to change your mind, to bring about repentance. But no one can believe in Jesus for you. Your parents can't do that. Your pastor can't do that. Your Christian friends can't do that. And in the same way, no one can repent on your behalf, in your place. The late pastor and theologian James Montgomery Boyce once said, Simon's case is a warning to anyone who thinks that because he or she has made a profession of faith or who has gone through certain motions expected of Christians, that he or she is right with God for those reasons. That is certainly not the case. I wonder, does that describe you this morning? Have you gone through the motions in your own life? Perhaps you, you prayed a prayer at one point. You, you were baptized. You joined a church. You, you, you went through the motions. But, but if you were completely self-honest today, if you were completely transparent, you would say, yeah, something's not right in my relationship with God. If you'll allow the term, sometimes there are stillbirths. Spiritually. As we close, hear God's word through the Apostle John. This is the message we have heard from him. And proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Others can pray on your behalf. No one can believe and repent on your behalf. And this morning, as, as we close, I, I'd just like to invite you to engage in some self-honesty before God. Could it be that you're caught in the grasp of a sinful habit, a sinful relationship, a sinful pattern of some kind that you've been unwilling to let go? It is it possible that, that you're at a place this morning of willingness to, to repent of that sin, to close the door, to lock it, nail it shut, walk away from it? I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. Just in the quietness of this moment, will you simply acknowledge that to God? Will you ask his forgiveness? Then as we sing this next song, if you'd like someone to pray for you, pray with you. Maybe you just need to verbalize that sin to someone. Or if this morning you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and and you'd like to take that step today, I'm going to invite you to come up to the front while we're singing this next song. And and, uh, our elders, two of our elders will be here to talk with you, to pray for you. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Lord, in this moment, would you speak? Would you work? Would you... Shine your loving, cleansing light into those deep places of our hearts. And would you call us to repentance, knowing that as we repent, as we confess our sin, you are faithful. You are just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Amen.